Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Riga. I think you know the topic we have to discuss this week, sort of, I, I can't say it's out of the blue exactly. I mean, in, in a sense, we have known this Jan 6 stuff was coming for two and a half years. Um, and, and, and beyond that, I think we've, I mean, obviously for a lot of the first year and a half or so, or maybe a little longer, we actually didn't know. And that was a, a matter of great suspense for, I mean, I'm sure it was a, a it was a matter of great su- suspense for Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows and these kind of people, but among, uh, Democrats, uh, Trump critics, just people who don't like coups. Uh, it's been a matter of some suspense about: Is there going to be any consequences for this? Are you know are 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 the laws going to be interpreted in some extremely narrow way that you say, well, you know, there's no there's no specific fake elector law. So what are we going to do? Or again, what has been in suspense and has made a lot of people on edge and angry and all those kind of things is are they just going to decide that like yeah it was a coup but we need to turn the page and um is it is it more damaging to make the country relive these things or uh is it despite the criminal conduct is it somehow worse to create a precedent that the pres the the incumbent president brings charges, or the Justice Department of the incumbent president brings charges against his predecessor or his challenger in the next election, and all this kind of stuff. But I think, you know, my 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 memory of how all of this unfolded is not is not uh, uh, necessarily that precise. But my general sense is that we have known that there is a serious January six investigation going on kind of since the beginning of this calendar year. And it uh, there's a number of things just, you know, kind of leaks you hear about and not necessarily leaks. And, you know, sometimes what are called leaks are just the defense attorneys of the people who went before the grand jury saying that their client went before the grand jury. And that that may not be on the record, but that's not a leak. People can, you know, you can talk about your own grand jury appearance. Uh, and then you had the appointment of the special counsel, all that kind of stuff. But of course, now we have had Trump getting his target letter. And unless and until, and I suspect until, we actually see the news of indictments, that's about as close as we're going to get to kind of like it's happening. And one of the additional matters for that, because for those of us who have covered criminal prosecutions and political scandals and so on and so forth for a long time, you know, target letter means the actual intent, the reason there are such things isn't just to help out reporters to kind of game out if there's if there's an indictment coming. It's basically a way of keeping everybody honest or I mean sort of too late for probably for the for the perp but you know it's basically so the so the person who is facing indictment can't come in and say hey i came in to talk to the grand jury you didn't tell me i was going to be indicted i thought i was just there as a witness or like 
I was just kind of nearby or something like that. It's to make everybody to have that clarity. Like, don't say we didn't make really clear to you you're the one who's probably going to be indicted and act accordingly. It's sort of like a, you know, lo-fi Miranda warning in a sense, although it doesn't have, just to be clear for all you lawyers out there who are going to correct me, no, it doesn't have any legal constitutional meaning in the same way, but it's, it's, it has some parallels. In any case, uh, I think the other thing that, um, oh, what I was going to say about that is that, so that's what a target letter is. And if you're, if you're in the business of, of, um, of covering these kind of cases, you know what it means. And yet, none of us are in the business or have really any experience of former presidents facing criminal indictments. So kind of like, what exactly does it mean in the case of a former president? Well, just, what was it, a month or so ago, we found out, right? When when when, when, when Donald Trump got his uh, uh, target letter, and in pretty short order, he got indicted. So I think we know this is this is coming, and um, all of the all of the politics that surround that, all of the legal ins and outs that um, that surround that. I think one thing we still don't know, though, is what exactly is he going to be indicted for, assuming he's indicted, and it's a pretty 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 good assumption. Uh, and what, if anything, are the various co-conspirators going to be indicted for? Uh, one thing I think that I think that we heard news from Rudy Giuliani's attorney that he has not received a target letter. Now, uh, I'm a little out over my skis here in exactly how the procedure works, but I think if you're cooperating. Um, you don't get a target letter because because you, you you know they're kind of telling you what your vulnerability is when you start cooperating if you are cooperating or maybe somehow or another he didn't do anything wrong it's a little hard to believe since like if uh, let's think about it this way uh, Trump didn't do this stuff on his own he wasn't able to do this stuff on his own. You know, it's it's pretty hard to uh, try to mount a coup literally on your own. But as we learned over time, the fake electors thing was a was something that was kind of umbilically connected to what happened on January 6th. There was, you know, all the hundreds or maybe thousands of people involved in January 6th in terms of actually going into the into the Capitol complex and all that kind of stuff. But again, it's a pretty open question just what he would be indicted for, what laws he would be indicted under. Um, you know, there's it's funny. I was actually on a uh, it's on a TV show, uh, I think right after. Wait, God, I'm losing track now uh, I, with uh, Neil Katyal about 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 this question. And he made clear, you know, we have federal government spends billions of dollars running a federal election. You can't just like try to get rid of it. There's all sorts of laws that cover this kind of conspiratorial action. But in any case, the details are, uh, are, are pretty important what he is indicted for, if he is indicted. And one thing that, you know, and we can get into this, one thing that I think is worth remembering, and it's something I, I think I mentioned in a post, it's quite likely that we are going to find out a lot of new facts about how this all went down. I think we broadly know the outlines, but what's important to remember, well, first of all, in terms of what the public knows, there's a lot of stuff that is known, but only by people who are following it really, really closely, right? Who listen to every uh, uh, Jan 6 committee hearing, who read the whole uh, published report, who see every single, um, you know, news report on the investigation. So it's quite likely we, that, that a lot more people will find out those details if indeed there are indictments. But the other thing is, I suspect we will learn a lot more. And the reason that is, is because uh, 
for all the great work that the January 6th committee did, they, in, in, well, they had subpoena power of a sort, but not really. They weren't really in a position to uh, compel testimony or in a critical sense, compel testimony from co-conspirators and make deals. So their power to unearth information is much, much greater than what the um, uh, Jan 6 committee uh, was able to do. So we're probably going to learn a lot of uh, a lot of new things. And uh, we're also going to talk today about the uh, the uh, coup uh, supporters, i.e. the uh, the House Republicans uh, and the Freedom Caucus and kind of what's going on with the budgetary stuff and all these like, you know, kind of poison pill votes about about abortion and and um, trans stuff and diversity initiatives and all, 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 all these kind of things. So we're going to get into um, all of that. But before we do, uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're tired of paying $5 for watered down bitter ice coffee and ready to DIY instead, let, let me stop you before you Google how to make cold brew at home. Making cold brew doesn't have to be complicated. You can do it without a French press, without a grinder or a scale. You don't even need a measuring spoon. A bean bag bundle from Grady's gives you exactly what you need to make perfect iced coffee. Just drop your bean bags in a pitcher, add water, sleep on it. 12 hours later, you'll have 12 glasses of New Orleans style cold brew ready to enjoy all week for less than a dollar a glass. It's a no brainer. The only decision you have to make is it original French vanilla or decaf. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so uh, Kay Riga, what are we talking about? It's funny because, well, <laughs> first it's like greatest friend to reporters, Donald Trump, who without fail, like pretty faithfully tweets out when he gets these target letters is pretty... Uh, a nice <laughs> aid to everybody in covering this stuff. Totally. Um, it's funny because what this is now going to be, if he's indicted, his third indictment, right? We had the first one about the Stormy Daniels hush money stuff. The second one was the hoarding the government documents at Mar-a-Lago. We've got this one. And then we've got the other one kind of waiting in the wings, which is out of Georgia about the kind of specific attempts to overturn the 2020 election there. Um, and Josh, you wrote about this, and I was kind of struck by it across the coverage, um, which we're now, you know, we've gotten multiple iterations to kind of uh, our, our data set of indictment stuff is getting bigger and bigger. And it's funny that January 6th does just land a little differently. Like at first, kind of the narrative was the documents case is the most slam dunkiest of them all because there's so much evidence and we have Trump himself on tape being like, I'm not president anymore. I can't declassify these, but look at them. They're secret. You know, like it's just kind of as much out in the open and cataloged a crime as there is, you know, of everything he's done so far that that's illegal. But the January 6th one is different because with especially the Stormy Daniels one, the Republicans were just like, this is stupid. This is old news. This is just vindictive going after Trump, blah, blah, blah. And I don't even know that there was a huge amount of pushback because I think even everyone watching this was kind of like, you know, if you had to lose one of the indictments, it'd probably be the Stormy Daniels one, you know, all things being all things being equal. But and then you have the the documents one. Everyone's like, well, that's a very solid legal case. You know, he should be worried about that kind of thing. But then you have January 6th, which is just comes with such baggage that the other ones don't. You know, like this is the ultimate, the ultimate crime. This is trying to overthrow democracy. This is as bad as it gets. And with it kind of coming back to the headlines, I think it just pokes at this wound everyone has that never really healed because there was no kind of like reckoning. It's like the night of you had Republicans for about a half second being like, yeah, this is Trump's fault. Maybe we should force him to resign. And then, you know, they they get back in line within hours of this happening. And, you know, we have the famous kind of McCarthy sojourn down to Mar-a-Lago and all that kind of stuff. And then since then, it's been 
that was that was a bad event. Nobody likes that event. Um, let's move on for the good of the country. We need but to like come it, together. It, it, was, it was so bad. Why are you still talking about it? Yeah. Like right. if we agree it's so bad, why are you still bringing it up? It's like bad. It's offensive. Just gotta, yeah, it's <laughs> offensive even to talk about it. What are you exactly. thinking? Exactly. How right. dare you? Which is just you know, politically, rhetorically, a more uncomfortable place for Republicans to try to have to balance versus the other indictments, which they can just meet with a blanket. This is the DOJ going after Trump. What about Hunter Biden? Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, January 6th is just a, an injury of a different emotional tenor to everyone in America. You know, like most people watch this happen on TV. It's just you don't have to be any kind of political junkie to know the ins and outs of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And it's, you know, one thing that's worth remembering, there was all of this sort of, uh, you know, kind of woe is me drama when Alvin Bragg brought his suit kind of like, oh, Trump's going to get reelected now, uh, you know, st starting it, you know, kind of having this be the indictment. It's such a weak and, you know, such a weak case, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. And I don't think it's a weak case. I mean, again, let's remember someone else already did time for this. It's, <laughs> right. you know, but but. But as is as is often the case in white uh, white collar crimes, it is you know look, Hunter Biden would not be facing any indictments or you know with these plea plea deals if he wasn't the president's son. Mm -hmm. If this all hadn't come up with you know with the laptop, blah, all this kind of stuff. But like you know, you still can't commit a crime, right? There's no kind of like hey. Everybody, not everybody gets, you know, if you are prominent, if you kind of get into federal pro into prosecutors crosshairs, you should need to be you need to hope you didn't commit any crimes because they are going to do something about it. And the fact that um, not everybody who does something gets charged with it, like, you know, it's life isn't fair, but like whatever. Right. That's just how it that's just how it is. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a. Uh, you know, you're defrauding the IRS. There's, a, you know, it's just kind of, it's not the biggest crime, but it's still a crime and, you know, whatever. And, and I think with the, with the Mar-a-Lago stuff, I mean, again, what the reason it, it, it lands a little differently is, as you said, he's clearly guilty of sin. I mean, it's, it's, it's open and shut from every different direction. And what we know from the cases of non-presidents who get, uh, you know, get brought up on this. I didn't know. You didn't ask nicely enough. None of that matters. It doesn't, frankly, it doesn't even matter if you did it intentionally exactly. The laws are very tight on this. You just can't have that stuff. And people do time on that all the time. But even even to the extent that you say, well, ex-president, you kind of do have to ask nicely a few times. They did ask nicely. And then his little, you know, valet or footman or whatever, you know, helped him move the stuff around. And then you got the stuff with, uh, you know, the, the swimming pool draining into some of the places where they were keeping all the all the nonsense. But I think there, for some people, you can still say, all right, he's a weirdo. Okay, it's against the law. But like, as far as we know, no one, he didn't sell him to anybody. So kind of like, you know, whatever. What's, you know, what's the harm? Now, I think that's a pretty weak argument because we actually don't know. Selling is a very loaded word. We don't know that, that things didn't get into the wrong hands. But, you know, again, people can kind of say like, all right, it's back now. So let's just move on. But as you say, with January 6th, it, look, he tried to he tried to overthrow the results of the election. And as you say, that's so foundational to everything. And combined to that, we all saw what happened that day. And that's not all of it. But like, we, we, we just all saw what happened that day. Right. And so this isn't like kind of you didn't fill out a form right or kind of you, know, you weren't supposed to have this like like, holy fuck, like wh what the hell happened there? Right. And, uh, you know, there there's I remember, I'm sure a lot of us remember, um, you know, when the Senate once uh, once they once they cleared the cleared the Capitol complex. And, and I'm sure all of us, it may take a minute to remember. But remember, there was like National Guard troops basically occupying the Capitol for like a couple weeks after that 
all happened. Um, once they got back in control of of the um, of the Capitol complex, the Senate meets and uh, Lindsey Graham's given a speech. Right. But he kind of famously gave this speech where he said, like, man, I tried. I tried. I tried sticking with Trump. I tried to be a loyal foot soldier, but like, I'm done. I'm off the train. You know, this was too much. I'm done. And as we know, eh, two or three days, he's back on the train. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> of course he is. And uh, as is so often the case, you know, one of the things they need to do that you need to do in a case like this is, okay, what's the story here? What's our, what's our, what's, what's our, what's our path back to being on Trump's team? And in the Senate, there was that whole thing of like, it was bad, but like he's, you can't, you can't impeach an ex-president, even though we told you to wait till he was out of office to impeach him and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and it's bad, but, uh, but it didn't work. We agree. It didn't work. Joe Biden's president. And uh, let's move on. And certainly, and, you know, remember we had that whole thing when they were trying to set up a committee. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, it's not fair. There's not enough of, there's not enough Republicans on it. And, um, well, if you're, if you're going to do that, you've got to also investigate the the, you know, whether Biden really, all the excuses, right? And that's how we, that's how we got here. And they've never really from, from, I was going to say from day one, not from day one, from day three, really from day three, their line has been pretty consistent, which is, we don't want to talk about this. We don't want to talk about this. Let's, we're, we're, we're just not going to talk about this. And, you know, now they're going to have to talk about it a lot. And it makes sense, right? Because part of why they don't want to talk about it is because we've seen in the past couple cycles, Democrats really effectively cast the Republican Party as one of extremists and wingnuts that are kind of the face of which is, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and these kind of crazy people. And like, Having January 6th at the forefront of everyone's minds while we're heading into this super important campaign season is just another reminder to all but, you know, the percentage of Republicans who still insist that it was, you know, I don't know, anything from tourists wandering the Capitol to, you know, uh, Antifa disguised as Trump people. But for like everybody else, it's just a reminder that like, oh, yeah, Trump's people are crazy. <laughs> like they, there are just, even in our super polarized society, it makes people uncomfortable to watch people smash the windows of the Capitol and like poop inside on the floors and stuff. For the majority of people, that's not something they like. And that's not something they like to be reminded of. And it's just an inescapable reality that the Republican position on January 6th, when you can kind of nail them down into taking one, if it's anyone who's kind of like worried about Trump being mad at them is going to be some kind of squishy, like most people didn't do anything bad. They were just walking around like, can you blame them? They're passionate, you know, and that's just that's weird. And we've just found out from these past few election cycles that there is a weird threshold that just will not fly in a general election because most people are like, that's a bridge too far for me. You know, I'm not going to like join forces with the QAnon shaman on this one. Right. And I think what, you know, back in, uh, in, in, in the 2022 midterm, one thing, you know, there was this, and, and we talked a lot on this podcast, not about, well, about this debate to some extent, but actually engaging in the debate that there was this, there was sort of this idea that, um, Democrats who wanted to talk about January 6th as an issue in the midterm, kind of like, yeah, okay, fine, brainiacs, if that's what really, if that's what you're focused on, uh, but really, we're focused on uh, inflation or other people saying, uh, actually, like, yeah, January 6th, but like, you know, half the population just lost basic, uh, well, like, 
you know, depending on what state you live in, uh, lost uh, basic, uh, basic bodily autonomy and decisions about their about uh, reproduction and that and that's the that's the thing. And that that question between, you know, is it is it about Dobbs? Is it about January 6th was uh, a really basic mm-hmm. and got pretty, pretty angry debate among Democrats. And, and look, these are both uh, these are both really serious things. It's you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't needing to be uh, choosing between the two. And I think I think the best um, takeaway from the election is that voters answered that, you know, kind of settled that debate. And the way they settled it is saying it's not either or. These are this is actually the these are two sides of the same coin. That Republicans are out of control. They are taking away the basics of things we rely upon. We we rely upon we're going to have an election and the side that gets more votes is going to win. Like that's a bedrock thing uh, in, well, again, a little fuzzy depending on what what state you live in. You know, we rely on if you need an abortion, you can have an abortion. If you're, if you're midterm in your pregnancy and you have some medical crisis that requires you have an abortion rather than die, you're going to be able to get one. And suddenly like, wow, all these basic things are these things that we're taking for granted suddenly they're getting, they're getting taken away. And, and that was, to me, that was one of the most interesting things about that cycle is that voters did not make the distinction that a lot of political analysts did seeing these things as you know in two separate buckets uh as impacting different kinds of people all that kind of stuff that they were kind of you know it was republican radicalism that's not they're not safe yeah Totally. Um, Also, you know, to just kind of tie a bow on this, the news of the target letter dropped while Ron DeSantis was on CNN, I believe, (laughs) trying to realize that he's like trying to do this campaign heel turn where like the big new quote unquote media strategy is to like stop avoiding all real reporters and that has kind of manifested in like okay like he'll talk to jake tapper you know or, or whatever you make himself look more like a real candidate and not just someone who will only talk to like i don't even know you know the the florida kind of far-right pamphlet or whatnot right um so not only did it kind of like cut into um you know the the showing of the interview but like it also made it entirely about Trump, you know, and DeSantis's reaction to the Trump indictment. And just another kind of further evidence that this is all about Trump. It's going to be all about Trump and kind of the same, the same drum we've been beating for months at this point. It's just like, how is DeSantis going to be an actual alternative option to Trump with staying power in this campaign if he has absolutely no idea how to position himself on Trump. And we've captured some of the kind of variations in this, the little like, oh my God, you know, too cute by half little like insinuations, like uh, veiled allusions to things that Trump did badly that if you haven't been paying like attention to every single minute detail of the past, what, six years, you'll have like no idea what he's talking about. But, you know, and he's doing the same thing now, just kind of the default. um, This is a witch hunt, blah, blah, blah. They can't help but go after him, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like the weirdest Republican primary where the leading guy is about to be thrice indicted and absolutely no one is using that as a point of attack at all, except for like Asa Hutchinson. (laughs) Well, it's also there's uh, I think I I think I saw this and I, I can't remember it now whether it was in that Tapper interview where uh, DeSantis basically said, "Like, yeah, January sixth wasn't great. I think he should have, like, he should have. I think he's. I think his quote was, he should have acted more forcefully. And when I first saw that, I I asked the reporter who reported it. I was like, you know, in what sense? Like, he should have." <laughs> He should have, you know, brought a little more firepower to the Capitol or like he should have tried to. I mean, I think he meant he should have tried to shut it down with, you know, with with a little more quickly. And that that was certainly um, uh, one of the 
one of the things that people have said uh, forever. And and but and as as I think we see from um, what we know now, uh, you know, we, we don't say Bin Laden should have should have should have put a stop to the 9-11 plot right like yes in theory but like it was his plot so like that's a that's a weird way to think about it right and 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 in this case it was trump's thing so yeah kind of i guess if he would have shut it down more quickly that would have been better than waiting but like you don't expect people to shut down their own thing yeah. right um and there is always it it it's it is and and maybe we will find out more about this if and when an indictment comes down um it is always it's never been entirely clear to me um just what the plan was how much kind of when you really see it you get cold feet um, or, and I suspect this is more of it when you really see it and other people really see it and people who you think are kind of your allies are saying, dude, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck is happening here? And then you start getting kind of cold feet because you realize the, the support isn't there. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about all of that stuff because it, and I think this is the working theory that the point of January 6th is that they were running out of time for the fake electors thing to work. And so what you want to do is you want to create mayhem so a Ted Cruz type person can say, "Hey, hey, time out. This is getting out of control. We're going to we're going to pause and try to do this in 2 weeks or something like that." And rather than it being, you know, "Hang on, we're going to violate the constitution." by and violate the law by deciding not to do this, which we are mandated to do, you can sort of say, hey, special, special, uh, special things apply, right? And, 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 and whatever. Um, And again, and again, this, this doesn't, this doesn't matter in the sense of like, who's culpable or stuff like that. But I, I have always been curious, how did they see that? playing out was it was it did they expect that it was going to be a little bit more like uh i i think i think the thing in michigan was before january 6 where they had those you know kind of jan 6 type people um kind of take over the capitol building but state capitals work differently you can go into a capital, you know, you can go into a state capital in most cases. It's not restricted space and you can wear funny suits. And I think they were, I don't remember if they were allowed to bring guns in, but, but basically you go in there and you just make a commotion and everybody's like, okay, just calm it down. But I, again, I, I don't know quite how they saw that plan shaking out and that you wouldn't have more people saying, dude, we're not doing this right um, who knows? I mean, maybe we'll find out. Right. Um, so we want to talk about a kind of a different side of the same coin, which is the increasing extremism of the Republican Party that's really enthralled to its like hardest right flank right now. And that's been infusing um, the process of funding the government, which we talked about in a previous episode. We kind of got into the granular um, mechanics of potential shutdown threats, which our listeners will remember. Um, the first one is in October when the fiscal year ends. And then the second one is January 1st. And in October, they can kind of punt it, use a continuing resolution like they usually do if they haven't gotten all these spending bills finalized by then. In January 6th or January 1st, um, they can do a continuing resolution if they haven't finished these bills. But if they still haven't kind of figured things out come April 30th, um, giant sequestration across the board, huge cuts, like big, big budgetary punishment there. And then, of course, throughout all of this, if, say, the majority Republican House refuses to kind of pass bills that have been agreed to, then we get a, a standard issue shutdown, which we're all, you know, pretty used to by this point. And, um, and to remind everybody, mm-hmm. when that when that hammer falls in April, it would 
uh, it would mean additional, basically social spending cuts, which obviously Democrats don't like, but it would mean something like three times in percentage terms, the amount of defense cuts. And that is certainly for Senate Republicans, that is like, that's, you know, existential. Mm-hmm. That is something they can never allow to happen. So point being, and this is this is this was always the backstop to that deal that the the uh, the consequences for Republicans are much more dire than they are for Democrats, and and right. hopefully that keeps everybody in line. Right. So now we're Congress has started the kind of like piecemealy process where every subcommittee has to put together, you know, a budget to fund whatever kind of organs they oversee, you know, whether that be the Department of Veterans Affairs or the FDA or whatever. Um, And we're seeing across the board, even some of these subcommittees, which are like kind of snoozeville, usually don't get a lot of attention. It's not a big post for people. So it doesn't tend to attract the big personality fights. You know, I'm talking about the kind of normal functioning old school government stuff with committee hearings nobody goes to and whatever. That kind of stuff is just and it's long been going this way, but it's really just going totally out the window. Even things that people used to kind of, it was, you know, a pocket of bipartisanship. And now it's like all these spending bills are just getting larded up with these riders that are basically across the board about the same thing. You'll have, if there's any kind of pipeline of abortion funding or abortion, like, education or anything that is in any of the organs under your purview, there'll be a rider against that. Um, And and to be clear, a lot of that is just abortion adjacent funding. Like whether or not you have the Hyde Amendment, there's like the federal government just doesn't pay for abortions. It's it's like maybe a program mentions abortion or something like that. Yeah. Or you've got kind of, you know, um, the the big defense bill was that you can't pay for soldiers to kind of travel if they're if they're stationed somewhere with no abortion rights to to go get an abortion someplace else. Or um, the VA has this kind of exception where um, you can get uh, they'll like fund an abortion if it's putting the woman's life in danger kind of thing. And so just, you know, the, the classic metaphor is the Christmas tree. Everyone puts their ornaments on the bill. And in this case, the ornaments are all, it's anti-abortion. It's almost all of them have some kind of like little clause. By the way, you can't do anything with critical race theory. You're, you're forbidden to teach that, even if it's something that's like, do you guys know what this is at all? Like, why are you putting this in the ag bill, you know? Um, and then you've got anything that includes like healthcare plans for federal employees or soldiers or what have you, um, you know, this can't cover anything related to uh, transitioning healthcare uh, or gender affirming therapy, anything like that. And then you'll have some have like different kind of uh, bonuses, you know, like uh, prohibition about what kind of flag you can fly aiming to make sure that pride flags can't be displayed or, um, you know, going after D.C. specifically with all these different, you know, trying to get rid of D.C.'s um, abortion regime and like you trying to get rid of um, there's a, there's attempts to make rights on red illegal throughout the whole district. And there is literally a writer about you can't do that in one of these bills, which is the most like self-interested congressman from who the fuck knows where being like, well, I want to make rights on red. So let's pop this in. Um, Isn't there. uh, So it's 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 basically the entire woke abortion trans DEI uh, critical race theory megaplex. All of these, you know, it's funny when you mention about the pride flag and, you know, one thing about the pride flag is that it, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure there's uh, an official pride flag. I mean, there's different iterations of it, but it's not an American flag. And in that's, in that sense, uh, you know, whatever, it's, it's just a flag, but, but talking about banning flags, what really does get to me at a basic level beyond the uh, political sig- um, signification of it is the blue and black. Mm. I'm not sure it has a name exactly. The sort of the 
the uh, blue you know, line flag. Yeah, the kind of quote unquote, you know, pro police flag. And honestly, you know, bastardizations, uh, reworkings of the American flag, especially flown on public facilities, is is like really offensive to me. Like there's an American flag, um, and that is a you know people have different certain people are into sort of like you know having one hanging off their you know on the on their house and other people aren't but that's a basic symbol of unity for the country and our you know our armed forces you know fight under it and that is a it's a basic thing about the country and making a an adversarial version of it I mean, people can do whatever they want. You, you know, you want to do a, 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 a nutso flag, fine. That's you can do whatever. But I'm surprised the extent like you see it sometimes flying on public public mm-hmm. facilities, like in different states. You see it. You see it flying under the American flag, uh, you know, at the city hall or at the police station or something. Um, and I, I it's really offensive to me. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think I'm the only I don't think I'm the only one. So the kind of practical effect of these poison pill riders is that this is such a a through line from when we were covering the debt ceiling stuff in uh, in depth, which is, you know, as we know, ended up being a compromise between McCarthy and really the president. It passed on the backs of Democratic votes mostly. And then you had the kind of Freedom caucus types be pissed for weeks and grind the floor to a halt and give all these kind of, um, you know, remarks to reporters about how McCarthy betrayed them and all this kind of stuff. And now McCarthy doesn't want to do that again because he doesn't want these people to be mad at him. So he's kind of trying to, he's trying to the other way this time. He's trying to say, um, you know, you can put in all these kind of amendments that they know Democrats like simply can't vote for. In addition to, as we discussed before, writing these spending bills way below the levels agreed to in the debt ceiling law. And McCarthy's just kind of like giving this his blessing. You know, he doesn't want to get yelled at again. So what that means is if you can ultimately get these bills passed through the full house, um, which, you know, is going to be kind of touch and go to begin with, because already in some ways, these spending bills were going to be a a little bit different because you have big swaths of progressives who kind of never vote for some of this stuff Um, when it comes to, you know, we saw this with the defense bill, right? Like a lot of progressives just don't are opposed to huge spending to our defense sector to begin with. So they always say no. But now with these kind of wider spate of spending bills, it's the hard right that always votes against them because they said like, you know, we're debt hawks and we don't want to blah, blah, blah. But McCarthy is like letting them kind of lard up these bills with their own little like we hate abortion amendments. Even though many of these people, the amount of time since they've gotten in Congress that they voted for spending bills at all is like, 10% or like in the single digits, they're still right now controlling how this is going in the House, how these bills are getting written. And what seems to be kind of the operating theory is that even if you pass, like we saw the defense bill passed last week with the abortion stuff and everything, even if the House can manage to pass it, Everyone's just kind of waiting for like the big boys and girls in the Senate to be like, okay, we're going to write something that can actually pass that is more kind of premised on the bipartisan way these bills used to work. And we're going to send that and then your version will come to the conference committee and we'll reconcile the two and all the offensive stuff will fall out. And then you're left with a product that is like fine to mostly everyone. And then you pass it by cutting out these like hard right wing people who won't vote for anything unless it's like you know, tucked into a national abortion ban or whatever. Right. So, you know, it's this, and like on top of that, which is just the house kind of writing themselves out of any kind of relevance and also extending what used to be the more kind of low hanging fruit part of the funding process and stretching it out for weeks, all of which makes what we talked about at the beginning, the the shutdowns and later the sequestration, all that gets more 
probable if this is taking forever and they're blowing all the deadlines. But it's also this thing that we've talked about a lot, which is like abortion is not proving to be an electorally super great issue for Republicans. And yet they're making every single fight about abortion restrictions, about going after trans people, about CRT, about these things that are so in the purview of their kind of like super online brain wormsy Newsmax and Fox watching constituents that I think would still sound pretty alien to even like the majority of Republicans, you know, not abortion so much, but the the other like super specific trans therapies and see, and you know, that kind of thing. So it's like this combination of going directly at what has proven to be electorally pretty toxic for your party, plus a smattering of like super online DeSantis campaign kind of priorities and being like, that's where we want to focus. You know, we want to say like, we're holding up, whether it be funding for veterans or the military or farmers or what have you, because we're insisting on getting these like niche kind of polarizing amendments on, which is all that anyone's going to be talking about, which will probably ultimately fall out of the bill by the time it comes time to really pass this. Yeah. I mean, as is often the case in, in situations with these kind of dynamics, it's been fine for people in the Freedom Caucus. They haven't had any problem with, with, with abortion politics. I mean, you, you may end up having an exception to that with Lauren Boebert, because as we know, she is like almost, I think she's almost unique in the Freedom Caucus in that whole, in that whole scene of having a swing, being in a swing district. Right. I mean, she, she, she won her last election by like 400 votes or something like that. Um, but, but generally it's fine for them. They're not losing any sleep over it. Um, and you do have this this dynamic, which we see again and again from the GOP, that they allow, um, you know, a couple dozen people from the Freedom Caucus to define major legislation, which they will not end up even voting for. Right. Um, which is, you know, something the, the, the GOP has to work out. But I assume um, McCarthy's, how I interpret what McCarthy's doing um, not with a lot of dignity, but that's nothing new, is that he's saying, look, my 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 one job was was not being responsible for a debt default. Got that. Like I did that. Okay. You know, I, I did the big one. And now you're all mad at me. So okay, just just get it out of your system by marking up all these appropriations bills and kind of load them up with with anti-trans stuff and 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 abortion stuff and CRT and everything else under the sun. And this is just going to get worked out somehow or another in the fall. And maybe there's going to be a shutdown. Maybe there's not. But like whatever I, I was, you know, I avoided the debt, the debt default, which really was my job one got that you're not you can't bring that back. And um, I mean, that that does seem like it because, you know, kind of Go at it, guys. You know, write these things up. Eventually, um, you know, you probably aren't even going to be able to get, at least in some cases, all Republicans to vote for these bills since they are, you've got a, certainly enough uh, House Republicans in Biden districts or near Biden districts uh, who, who, are going to be a little a little uh, iffy about this stuff. And you go back to the point we just made, which is you Freedom Caucus guys aren't going to vote for it anyway. So you're going to need some Democrats since what you have a five a five seat majority. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, you know, that th that is that is one of the cardinal things about about Kevin McCarthy is like, you know, e each fight do its own day. Mm -hmm. Right. I got past that thing. Somehow or another, we're going to, you know, maybe there's going to be a government shutdown like it's happened before. But but, you know, compared to a debt to fall, it's not that big a deal. We've done, you know, we've done it before. Um, and that's kind of it. And as you said, you've got uh, who? wait, who is it? It's it's a uh, Susan Collins and Patty Murray, Patty Murray, who uh, they're the kind of the designated grown ups here. Mm -hmm. And and as I understand it. And they are sort of very conspicuously doing this, or at least they're kind of putting out the word they're doing this, that they are just writing a normal bill. Yep. Kind of like what will actually happen, Bill. Um, and 
the whole shutdown drama is really just about how much antics are there going to be between where we are right now in, uh, you know, kind of choose your adventure appropriations bill land and where we're actually going to end up, i.e. the Collins Murray bill of actually the government funding and, 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 um, you know, and I, it, it does seem, I mean, who, who the hell knows? I mean, it, it does seem like we're going to get to, uh, we're going to get to a thing where, uh, probably most Democrats and a little lower percentage of Republicans in the House eventually vote for the thing. And that kind of meets everyone's needs. And then that's it. Sort right. Of. Yeah, I mean, because there's no other way to pass stuff in a split Congress, right? Like you can kind of do all the right wing House pandering you want, but that's never going to pass the Senate. So the only way to do it is kind of to cut the terrorists out of the equation um, and let them throw a tantrum again or try to unseat McCarthy. And one thing that I think is so striking is the old carrots that would kind of get the even these kind of people to play ball to some degree were, I mean, first of all, just gerrymandering has made the vast majority of House seats completely uncompetitive. So there's really no, uh, you, you know, there's no incentive anymore to be anything but what the the hardest right people want you to be. Because if you're in like a Trump plus 30 district, like, OK, you know, you can just do this online stuff all the time and it doesn't matter. Um, but the other thing is that people used to have a stake in it because you wanted to shovel money back towards your district. You know, you wanted to get your project funded. So when this bill comes out, you can say like, and Representative Riga secured $3 million to rebuild the bridge. Like, here you go. You're welcome. Good job electing me. Look how helpful I am to you. Basically, yeah. But that stuff is also becoming more rare, you know? And I do think it goes hand in hand with like the Republican Party just abandoning the the kind of all the tenets of like quote unquote policy that used to make up the the bulk of the job and I, you know I'm not even talking kind of like big comprehensive national policy but the kind of stuff that's like if you come from a district where there are is a big fishing culture then you're going to kind of spend your time in congress trying to make sure you have like clean water and subsidies for fisher people and like try to kind of make that your thing so you get reelected and that ha- still happens to a degree but not the way it used to like you do have this new crop of republicans who literally all they do is like put out anti Hunter Biden resolutions and kind of like leave it at that. I always go back to he's not in the House anymore, but the Madison Cawthorn thing where he only hired a comms team and not a legislative one like that really is the theme for this kind of like post Tea Party crop of hard right authoritarian Republicans, especially in the House, because obviously it's harder for those people to get elected to the Senate. You know, it's it's not a it's not a major part of this, but a significant part of this. And this is something that goes all the way back to God, I guess it was in the first decade of the century. I, I, I wanted to say it was the 90s, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't the 90s. Earmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what an earmark is, is basically you put into a, you know, you put into a transportation funding bill or maybe it's not a transportation funding bill. You put a little line that says, uh the 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 broken down bridge in Josh's district is going to be fixed with a budget of at least three million dollars. And that is, as you're saying, that's the kind of thing that when things get jammed up, you kind of it brings people along. Mm-hmm. Someone, you know, one of the, someone in leadership says, Josh, what do you need? What do you need? What is going to really help back home? And and I say, well, there's that bridge. I we that bridge is a problem, and it's going to get fi- you know get it fixed, and then I'm going to be able to put out a press release like Josh, you know, Representative Josh got the bridge fixed, and that was earmarks became this was portrayed as this sinkhole of corruption, and it was true that. Um, there were some cases of representatives, uh, you know, getting stuff into, um, uh, you know, g- getting stuff into bills and some lobbyists had paid them to do it or paid, you know, paid, kind of too closely aligned their political giving with it and stuff like that. Um, but that's just a reason you shouldn't be corrupt. 
that's not and 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 in some way it's it's a funny thing because there's so much now of and and this you know this this even gets into the stuff we've talked about with the courts um about the power of congress normally you know there is a huge thing now among republicans about you know the deep regulatory state that these nameless bureaucrats in in the federal you know in the federal agencies are doing their own thing and not listening to a maybe not listening to the president maybe not listening to elected leaders all this kind of stuff you know there's some uh you know i was going to say crt inflected but even not that look let's look at it in a very practical sense um there are i'm sure there are people in the department of transportation who come up with with you know national priorities about what we're going to rebuild and what we're not going to rebuild and which bridges are we going to focus on and what are we going to build them out of and and they should be doing that right because why else have a transportation department if you're not coming up with um well thought out national policies earmarks are a way to say okay congress here really specifically you need to build that bridge you need to fix that bridge now um people call it pork and you know and yeah it is at some level but that's also that elected representatives you know i've got a coupon it's my vote and i'm gonna go up there and say hey i really need the bridge needs to get fixed and maybe uh the bureaucrats and i say that in this context not in a sort of a demonizing uh, uh denigrating way but just you know the, the people coming up with the plans of the department of, of uh transportation they're not focused on that or maybe there's some policy reason they think it's not the the most important bridge to fix it is a it's something that 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 should happen it's a it's it's a it is a ridiculous thing for Congress itself to get rid of, um, just for really good uh, democratic responsiveness reasons. But it also ends up, and again, it's 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 basically things have have broken down because country's so polarized, gerrymandering, Republican Party being dominated by total crazies. But it does come into effect that one of the um, you know, one of the tools that leadership has is to say to some, you know, recalcitrant person, what does your district need? What's going to make you super powerful, uh, not powerful, well, maybe powerful, <laughs> super popular? You know, what problem can we deal with? Is it is it the lead pipes in your district? Is it is it, you know, the bridge that hasn't been fixed? Is it some money to, uh, you know, the, the, the little military base in your district that's just, you know, kind of overgrown with weeds that we're going to do some economic development, we're going to bring some jobs, you know, there's going to, uh, we've get we've got this new, um, you know, jet fighter, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make the, um, we'll make the seat in your district, bring in 500 jobs. That's a way that that uh, that things got done, and not not got done in some corrupt or bad way. There, there's you know it, a lot of this thing is a lot of these things are not just how it works or the only way to get things done, but there are good ways to get things done. Yeah, and I mean we've made fun of before the kind of like many. The, all the waxing lyrical about bipartisan and an age of comedy and how this stuff is bygone. And, you know, a lot of that is fine to make fun of. But it also in a foundational way, some of this kind of like aisle crossing stuff was just how you got things done because you can't do things with one party, especially if you're if you're in the minority in one of the chambers. And so a piece of this is like you kind of have the the chair and the ranking members of these subcommittees who got along fine, right? Because it's not you know, the Republican tends not to be a a Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever, and you're just kind of banding together to try to fund rural improvements or whatnot. And now you know, while I've been reporting this story, I keep hearing tales of like the Democrats walk into the markup and have, you know, something like 
all the money that was going to go to these like LGBTQ resource centers, like that's all being stripped out. And they would have this kind of sprung on them by a, a member and a, and staff on the Republican side with whom for a long time, they kind of like, they thought they had a good working relationship. You know, they thought that they could kind of do this non-dramatic, boring nuts and bolts stuff relatively painlessly. But the combination of the yanking to the far right and just the sheer like nationalization of everything that Congress does, even the stuff that used to be on like the the local level, like we've been talking about, just it's trickling down into everything, even the the places that have not generally been sites of these kind of like big televised hearings that are, you know, partisan blowouts that people can turn into campaign clips like it's living there too now even when the rank or the chair the republican chairs are not particularly right wing themselves but as we've seen and as we keep kind of making fun of like the quote-unquote republican moderate has not seemed you know willing or able to stand up to any of these kind of far-right impulses and so every time they just keep going along with it you know and letting the infection just spread to even to the corners that hadn't yet really fully uh, infiltrated. Yeah, and I, I would think in this case that uh, those, I mean, it's hard to even say like what counts as a moderate now um, yeah. in the House, House GOP, but I would assume it's not just a matter of like they're going along with it. I would, you know, it, generally speaking, if you're if you are a committee chair, um, especially in the um, uh, the GOP caucus, if you're a committee chair, you've got to you, you have to have a good relationship with 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 McCarthy. That's just that's just how it works. And I assume what has happened behind the scenes is McCarthy goes to Chairman X and says, "Look, these Freedom Caucus guys are out are 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 totally having a tantrum. Uh, you just let them let them kind of do help them do whatever they want. This is going to allow them to kind of get it out of their system, make a lot of noise, get a lot of headlines. So I I assume that that you know, it's 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 not just that not standing up to them. They're being told by the leadership kind of like give these guys all they want. Um and and in a kind of a perverse house GOP context it makes sense because McCarthy's thinking we've got to we've we've got to give them some room to have their tantrum, and we've got to give them something to say. Uh, you know, McCarthy sold us out, but more, you know, we're showing him now because we're uh, going to the mat over the um, you know the gay teen crisis center in Akron, Ohio, or something like that. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's coming from on high. This is what he has to do to, uh, you know, give them some venue to, uh, have their tantrums in because he doesn't want them to have the tantrums at him and, and cause all the problems that, you know, that, that that might. So exactly. there you go. Yep. So is that, I guess, I guess we've covered some pretty good ground. We covered the mm-hmm. January 6th stuff. Um, you know, it, it's possible we're, we're, um, we're recording. We had some scheduling issues yesterday. Uh, and so we're recording the, the pod a day later than normal. But it's possible we could have big January 6th news by the time we record the next podcast. I don't remember exactly how long the, you know, the hang time, for lack of a better word, of the last target letter was. But, you know, everything kind of uh, uh, came together pretty quickly. So uh, if there is more, well, we might even do one of these Instapods. We've been talking about doing more of those Instapods. So, you know, we yeah. have one of the things we, we've done a few of them um, over time, but we're probably going to do and, and, you know, give us feedback on this. Right, kind of what you like, what 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 you find useful as listeners to the podcast. But basically, what what we're talking about is, you know, when there's some big news, sometimes we'll just say, "Hey, let's just do a quick pod." It'll be like 15 minutes long. We'll kind of do a a, a quick run through of what we know right now. So, mm-hmm. uh, if Trump is indicted sometime sometime before Wednesday, we might we might do that. But even if yep. even if that doesn't happen and there's no need for one, uh, give us a sense. You know, give us a sense of what what 
what things about the pod you like and whether you find those kind of um, uh, little mini versions between the main episodes helpful. And uh, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off on any order by using the promo code TPM when you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com. Again, uh, promo code TPM. And I think that's all we got for this week. All right. See you soon. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader